Welcome to 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence, the podcast where we interview real people with real stories of taking charge of their time and reaching financial independence faster. And now, your host, Elisa Zen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence. Today, I have Nikolai Ray, who is one of my personal favorite when I go to conference and etc. to listen to him because his sessions always so enlightening um and also my one go-to in terms of how it's market going and asking for second advice nikolai is a founder and ceo of mrex as well as a professor in real estate financing engineering at mrex college he's regarded as one of the north america's leading expert in apartment investing with over 10 billion with a b uh, in analysis underwriting and transactions and Nikolai is also a educator, advisor, and speaker. He often, uh, you can find him on some of the conferences that he goes to. Of course, uh, during COVID, we don't see him very often um, <laughs> because he resides in Canada and uh, he speaks French. So if you went to his website, the first time I ever met him, went to his website, uh, it was on French. So I couldn't read it, even though I'm Canadian as well. Um, so welcome to our show, Nikolai Ray. I'm so glad that you're here. And it's a long wait uh, for me to have you on our episode here. Thanks, Elisa. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to, uh, to be able to talk with you, as always. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to kind of get a little personal on our show today. Sure. Um, and then really kind of get into um, some of the stories that you share. And, and I understood that you're like a really self-made um, so I wanted to kind of get into a little bit of early of your story, how that all started. Um, so one of the questions we always ask our guests to start the show is, um, tell us a little bit more the, um, the entre entrepreneur bug, um, and in terms of you grow up, who kind of made that big influence to you or there are certain incidents that you can kind of share with us? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question, you know, cause I think there are a lot of uh, kind of cool things to explore within that. Uh, number one, uh, probably the biggest thing that makes me an entrepreneur, entrepreneur is my problem with authority and not like liking being told what to do. <laughs> and and uh, I've always kind of, I think as a child, I was always the kind of child that would always ask why, like nonstop, like so much so that my parents would get just completely annoyed with me. And now I have a son who's exactly like me. So, so now I feel, I feel for them, but I think it probably comes from that, from the fact that just naturally my inclinations have always kind of to be like, to always question authority and question why things are. Mm -hmm. um, number one, number two, probably my, my, my creative side. I come from a family of uh, my, my parents were artists. My dad was a, a blues and jazz musician, traveling blues musician. So I actually, even though I'm Canadian, I, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and California um, and pretty much, you know, lived all over North America, all over the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably I'd say the third thing is uh, my family background. Mm -hmm. is, that's probably a lot to do with it because I come from a, uh, I, I'm Canadian, but my father was half Bengali and half British. Yeah. And uh, my family in Bengal in, in the northeast of India uh, was a very prominent uh, uh, noble family because there's a caste system in, in India. And, uh, you know, I had uh, one of my great uncles is a Academy Awards Lifetime Achievement uh, winner. Wow. Uh, they gave him the Lifetime Achievement Award on his deathbed in the early 90s. Uh, Satyajit Rai, who uh, Apu in The Simpsons is based actually off of his works. <laughs> Funny, funnily enough, 
Um, another one of my uh, great, great uncles, actually, uh, the boson in electricity is named after him. Uh, Satyendra Nat Bose, who was a, wow. a Nobel Prize uh, nominee with Albert Einstein because they were working together on on the boson and the Bose-Einstein condensate. So I think all of that kind of, you know, as I grew up, as I became a teenager, as I became an adult, you know, I was often trying to answer that question that you asked me is kind of where does this come from? And my, my, my conclusion is it, it's kind of a mix of all of that put mm -hmm. in together that I think has just kind of made me into uh, the, the entrepreneur that I am. My parents obviously supported me a lot and just, you know, doing me and not, 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 not trying to put me into this kind of, you know, square mold and allow it, right. allowing me to explore and, and, you know, be who I am. So I think that's probably where it comes from the most. Got it. Got it. So kind of like a really encouraging parents kind of brought you who you are. Now, as I was reading your bio, and as we personally talked before, you just have all these really fascinating stories when you grew up. You were <laughs> um, ex-professional. I didn't even know you were an ex-professional hockey player. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I should have guessed because you're from Canada. Um, and then the three times Olympic chief for hu human performance. Um, but you also studied biomechanics at undergraduate level, and then also successful entrepreneur opening for company. So there's so much impact over here for our listener, um, because most of us kind of working in our boring uh, daytime job, and then I wanted to see what's it like to be on the other side. Can you kind of walk us through um, that, even though your parents didn't put you in the box, kind of growing up, did you kind of went to college, went on the path of having a daytime job um, and all that? Yeah, I've never had a daytime. I've never had like a, a W-2 job or anything like that. I just, you know, uh, my obviously with with a very eclectic family that I grew up in, we, I grew up quite poor in Los Angeles in a pretty rough neighborhood. Uh, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying it was the ghetto, but it was pretty much the outskirts of the ghetto kind of like <laughs> if you cross the street, then it, it was the ghetto pretty much. Yeah. So uh, we were poor, but like just a little bit richer than dirt, dirt poor. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. And my, my, you know, my parents being, my dad was a musician. My mom was a theater actress. So in Los Angeles, essentially what that means is she was a waitress, right? Because right. Everyone who's not able to make it ends up being a waitress or a waiter or something like that. So, you know, they were just plugging, plugging away, but my, my childhood was, was, you know, everything away from normal. It was, you know, it was just very kind of eclectic and, and, and open-minded and um, I, I fell in love with hockey when Wayne Gretzky got traded to the Los Angeles Kings huh. when I was living in L.A. in the early 90s. And at that time, hockey was too expensive in L.A. because I think there was only like two arenas in the whole in the whole uh, L.A., you know, bigger metro metropolitan area. Yeah. So my parents didn't have the money for that. So after the Martin Luther earthquake, uh, Martin Luther King earthquake that happened uh, in 94, in January of 94, when LA got pretty, pretty messed up, uh, we decided to move back to Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, school was getting kind of violent for, for me as a child, uh, you know, with all the, 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 the gang bangers and all that stuff. So we moved back to Montreal, uh, to Quebec City, actually. And I, it was my chance to play hockey. So from that point on, from the age of 10, all I wanted to do was play hockey. Right. Like that's all I want to do was play in the NHL. And uh, luckily, my parents also made sure that I always, you know, kept my education up because, mm -hmm. you know, the career of a professional ice hockey player is, is in average only a year and a half. And the chances of making it is, is like 
zero pretty much right so uh i was i was always a very smart child i was always probably you know i probably if you would have tested me on, on like an iq test when i was like 10 i probably would have already scored you know over 125 130 mm -hmm. so i was very strong in math and science uh having that indian background obviously <laughs> <laughs> and uh and, and yeah, so till till the age of 22, I ended up becoming a professional ice hockey player. Didn't quite make it to the NHL. Uh, a bit of bad luck, a couple bad injuries, uh, just timing, you know. And uh, at 22, decided, hey, you know what? What am I going to do now with my life? I had at that time uh, managed to uh, uh, study in biomechanics at university while playing hockey. Uh, mm -hmm. So I went and did a, pre, a, a postgraduate studies at Harvard for uh, the time of a summer. Uh, in preventive medicine, and then ended up, you know, pretty much just launching my business in, in, in that area. And it was a way for me to transition on my out of my hockey career and my athletic career, because the, the transition from professional athlete to kind right. of normal person is a very, very documented, hard transition to make. Right. So I think that's kind of why I wanted, I, I tried to stay kind of in the sports area professionally, mm -hmm. and uh, had a lot of success quite rapidly. Ended up going to the Olympics three times as a as chief of human performance for Canadian Olympic uh, teams, but uh, my my real passion as I, I was getting older, I always knew was math and, and even more so finance. Right. So that's kind of where I just you know eventually went into the world of real estate, and uh, real estate has just been an amazing passion for me because it, there's really no there, there's no limit to what you can learn and what you can do and what you can apply in real estate. Hmm. And, you know, that's where I've really made my niche in, in the multifamily world for the last 10 years. Uh, I've pretty much, you know, done it all. And I, I, I continue to keep on, you know, really pushing the envelope. And that's why, you know, eventually I've, I've always liked, you know, sharing what I find. I don't like, I don't like finding something out and just keeping it for myself. I'm a very, right. you know, kind of social person. So I think that's also what has made me as a, an educator, essentially, is that everything I find and discover and learn. I'm very excited to go and share it with other people. Mm -hmm. So becoming an educator and a teacher in the real estate field was kind of, you know, very natural for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, there's a, uh, so much unlimited things to kind of untap. Um, it's cool. It's cool. Learning something new. Like, right. I, I don't get people who don't want to like, like become more knowledgeable. Like it's, it's, it's such a fun thing. I think it's good for your self-esteem. I think it's just a great feeling when you're like, Oh wow. Now I understand how that works. That, like, how cool is that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, um, that's a quite a bit transition from a kind of professional athletes to then, but you mentioned, uh, that's actually something I was going to ask you, which is uh, how do you deal with the transition, but you answered it. Uh, but you kind of staying somewhat close to uh, the arena of uh, athletes yeah. Um, yeah. and then kind of get into the biochemistry. And I'm guessing if I recap it correctly, you probably then transition into startups because you mentioned you have opened four different businesses. Yeah. Um, and well, then right when I stopped playing hockey, I mean, I actually started my own business in, in, in the high performance sports because being a professional athlete, having that education as well, that yeah. college level education, uh, I, I, I needed to do something. So I said, okay, well, I'll start, you know, offering athletes my, my, my services as a human performance coach, right? Doing biomechanical testing, uh, strength and conditioning programs and nutritional programs and mental preparation and stuff like that. And uh, ended up, uh, that ended up creating two things. 
my Olympic level human performance career as a coach. Yeah. And all, as well, I started a company that was pretty much offering all these services to three types of population, high level athletes, um, CEOs and entrepreneurs, and uh, also uh, insurance companies. Mm. So uh, that business actually grew quite a lot from the age of 22 to 25. I probably had like 75 employees at that time. I also started a, a hockey re uh, player agency to represent hockey players with one of my buddies who was a, a lawyer. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that's that's how I got into business. I, I didn't know I was getting into business. I realized it quite a couple of years down the road that oh wow, I have these businesses now. I just didn't want to get a job, and I just want to be. I didn't want to be told what to do, and I wanted to do cool stuff. I wanted yeah. to build cool things. I'm, I'm much. I see myself as a builder, you know, more than anything else. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how I, I I got into it. But as I had that success, you know, I was in my mid twenties. I already had like. A massive amount of success and I wasn't really enjoying it that much and then one of my businesses really failed yeah. and that pushed me to think about like why am I doing this and what am I doing and is this really what I want to do and that's kind of where you know eventually my aim fell upon finance and then more precisely real estate finance mm -hmm. and uh, then that's where my second part of my career started I started a real estate investment banking firm and that once again grew like like pretty much everything I've touched, you know, just grew exponentially yeah. in a very short period of time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's, that's awesome. It. So you you talked about um, the real estate financing. Um, so let me kind of go back a little bit, and then we'll kind of move on to our real estate sex segment of the part. Um, but, but you mentioned um, because you opened so many company from like just a startup. Would you categorize, because uh, one thing I really admire is you is you always have a very concise way to kind of describe things. If you're kind of thinking back on creating all these different ventures and et cetera, is there a formula that our listener can kind of listen to in terms of different stage of growth and what you found really challenging and then how you kind of overcome that? Well, I think the number one from, thing like, is... Maybe from a, first person startup like yeah, yeah, have yeah. itself and then the next thing I think the number one thing is just number number one is looking at a problem um and i think there are two ways of looking at that there uh so i mean i like to look at stuff i'm very in tune and i think that's where you have to listen a lot and be very sensitive to what's going on and try and see you know what what's happening in the market and and what could be done better or differently right so that doesn't mean you have to invent stuff. Like you, everyone talks about innovation. You could just say like with my real estate investment banking firm, what I did was I looked at the multifamily real estate market and I said, okay, what's being done and what could be differently or done better? Mm -hmm. And I realized that number one, uh, a lot of the services transaction-wise to real estate investors, it's they're just brokerages, right? They're just real estate agents and brokers essentially brokering deals, but there's no one really out there offering true uh, advice and, uh, and services to small cap real estate investors. It exists at the institutional level right. where you have like a green street and, you know, all these different big uh, institutions offering uh, advice to uh, private equity firms and stuff like that. But there's no one really offering a firm, a service, a boutique firm that would help you not only transact properties, but also help you advise on how to transact, what to transact upon, which properties to buy, how to model those acquisitions and do all that stuff. 
So I just kind of looked at the market and said, okay, how can, you know, what needs to be offered and what can be done differently? And then do it and try it and then listen and try and, you know, get the feedback of people and what do they think of your, of, of your services and your offerings and whatnot. And, and then you just adapt towards that. So I think that's, that's probably the best way. And, and in real estate, it's the same thing. Like I see everyone trying to do the same thing. And I think sometimes I always see people try to do the same thing as everyone else. Number one, which I think is a mistake. Mm-hmm. And number two, I see people who are not doing that and who to try, who just tried to reinvent the wheel. And that's not necessarily a better thing either. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to kind of look at what people are doing already and just kind of tweak it a bit. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and, um, and then on scalability, how did you like, you know, when you grow a business from like a one person to 75 people, et cetera, yeah. like kind of different layers in terms of how you actually grow that business and, um, things that you found extremely painful, but you wish that you didn't. <laughs> Scaling a business is extremely painful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, I think if anyone thinks the contrary, I think they're kind of living in a dream world. I think you have to understand that, you know, starting a business is a hard thing, uh, but I think it's a very doable thing. I think scaling it and especially uh, managing that growth, the yeah. hyper growth is a very, very difficult thing to do. And that's, that, that's in my eyes where most people actually end up failing. And that's where, you know, the one failure that I've had in business in all my years, I, I say I've had 15 years of success and 15 months of, of hell. The yeah. 15 months of hell was managing that kind of hyper growth yeah. not losing it right yeah um, so i think uh you know managing growth is a question of of number one no matter what you do it's going to be chaotic and you have to appreciate that chaos and mm-hmm. embrace it and in a world of chaos i think one thing that comes to mind uh is that discipline equals freedom and there's a great book on that i think it was jocko willink uh who was a uh, uh, a navy seal wrote that book and I, I really believe that uh, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and a real estate investor and or a real estate investor, the level of your, the level at which you can perform in chaos is what defines you as a success. It's like in, in, in sports, the greatest athletes are not the ones who are the greatest in practice. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are the greatest in the games because games are chaotic. No matter how many times you prepare for a game, there's always something that happens in a game that you might not have expected or happens in a different way. And that's chaos. And the greatest athletes are the ones who are able to apply what they've trained for throughout that chaos. So I think in real estate investment, investing and entrepreneurship, it's kind of the same thing. But in order to do that, you have to put in certain you know, a, a certain structure and a framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really cool ones out there that I think that can help. I've, I've, uh, I used at one point something called Scaling Up by, the, by Vern Harnish, mm-hmm. which is a system essentially to, to help you kind of, it, it's like creating an operating system for your business. And I think this can be done in real estate quite well. And there's also another system now that I, I'm looking at it even more. I think it's more of a modern version of, of the Scaling Up system. It's called EOS entrepreneur operating uh, system, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really cool, uh, re- really interesting system as well. So I think putting in certain systems, certain, you know, uh, uh, frameworks and structure to allow you to then have the freedom 
to perform well throughout chaos is definitely the way to scale up businesses. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Um, and uh, so that that's really great advice. And then in terms of hiring, do you also have advices in terms of like hiring? Hire fast, fire fast. <laughs> yeah. I think no matter how, you know, everyone thinks they're great at hiring. I think it's, it, it, it's, you never know. Like, like until you hire the person, you never know. So hire someone fast. Don't get, I, I, I used to go through all these like heavy, you know, interview processes and stuff like that. And you end up putting all this time and effort and energy into hiring someone. The only way you'll know if they're any decent is by hiring them and letting them, you know, do their job. And, right. and then you have to be really quick to fire them. Like the minute you have a doubt, it's, you know, get rid of them. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although it's a little hard, uh, easily said than done. So much, much, much easier. <laughs> yeah. It's easier to say that than to do it. hundred percent. Even after 15 years, I still have trouble doing it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so fast forward, kind of get into the real estate part of you actually came in at a kind of different position. What is your first acquisition? Like, I'm going to ask that because you're coming from the financial background where most people will start from the landlord. Like I'm right. actually managing my right. family, yeah. etc. I started much more as a professional, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think which is why it makes you really unique because every time we kind of talk to you, it, it feels much more conversation is very institutional graded per se. Right. <laughs> um, right. So um, let's uh, talk about your first transaction or your first um, kind of acquisition in that in that manner. Yeah. Well, uh, professionally, my first acquisition that I worked on was an eight-unit apartment building in a in a pretty crappy neighborhood so i mean it was a, a, a it, it wasn't the simplest of deals the the seller was an elderly elderly lady uh she didn't have any leases in place so it was all like verbal monthly leases yeah so you can you, you can you can appreciate the type of person that was living in that apartment building like one of the units I, my business partner like he had to leave he had to like run out of the apartment unit and puke in the street because it was so disgusting because there were like eight cats in there and the lady didn't take care of her, didn't take care of the litter. So that was kind of my first, my first uh, professional experience in the transaction world. And it was actually, it was good because like you said, like, obviously I've worked on very institutional level stuff, very high level stuff. I'm a very high level thinker, I think, but yeah. I'm also a very eclectic person. So I'm very high level, very macro, very, uh, you know, theoretical and all that, but I'm also someone who grew up very poor. I'm someone who, you know, likes wearing jogging pants and 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 can be on the field and you know can can put on a pair of boots and get dirty. And I think that first deal also was very good for that because it really, you know, it really sank in the fact that multifamily real estate, yes, can be very high level institutional and theoretical at times, but it's also a very boots on the ground, very, you know pull your sleeves up type of investment. Yeah. And that's what I really like about it because it's, you have like the best of both worlds. You can be very sophisticated, very high level, but you can also, you know, kind of, you know, leave, leave your computer, put on a pair of jeans and some work boots and talk to people and, you know, and get your hands dirty. So it's, I, I, that's what I love so much about it. Uh, so that was my first deal essentially um, uh, as a professional uh, my first deal as an investor, I'd say, was very young with a couple of buddies. I, I actually lent, lent them a, a part of the down payment. So I don't really consider it my first deal because I didn't do much. I just pretty much underwrote the deal. Yeah. The first actual deal that I purchased myself 
was a seven-unit apartment building, uh, purchased it for $420,000, and it was essentially a crack house. And uh, we put in about $700,000 in renovations into it mm-hmm. and turned it into a beautiful apartment building now that's worth, uh, uh, that's worth uh, I believe, like $1.5 million. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's how, uh, those were my first deals personally and professionally. Yeah. And then, um, do you try to hold, I know you have a whole bunch series about this. Do you like buying hold? So I'm going to ask you a general question. Uh, well, because, yeah. Well, because my real estate investing is not like, I'm not, I, I don't invest in real estate to like leave my W2 job. Cause I don't have a W2 job. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, but I don't, I don't invest either to not, uh, have to have my businesses work for me or, 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 so I'm not looking to gain any cash flow for my, for my investments, for my real estate. It's, it's more of the reason I invest in real estate is number one to kind of hedge against my entrepreneurial activities, which are very high risk. Right. So my real estate, I consider is much less riskier, even though I do, even though I do invest in very high risk assets mm-hmm. and I do very heavy value add and opportunistic uh, type of deals. Mm-hmm. But I see it as a way to hedge. I see it as a way also to kind of, you know, it's more for like my kids and for like, for, for my, my, my legacy more than anything else. Yeah. Um, use that as a springboard for my kids eventually when they want to do, a, you know, once they become adults. Yeah. And also it's, it's kind of a, like a lab for me because I see myself as much more as a professional. I, I'm a professional in the real estate investment world. I'm an educator. Uh, I'm a researcher. I'm a thought leader. So I think that's what what sets me aside is uh, a lot of people who do like I do, they're just theoretical, right? right? They're just very institutional level. Whereas I'm actually doing small deals on my own right. with my money, you right. know, risking that. So that allows me to kind of be kind of like what Gary Vaynerchuk calls the clouds in the dirt, where I'm yeah. like kind of in both worlds. Yeah. So doing that is... It, it's, it brings a lot of value to me because as an educator, as a thought leader, it helps my brain kind of associate the two things together and just be even better at sharing knowledge with other people and building, you know, real estate companies and, and advising people. Yeah, definitely. And then do you... Um, By the way, there's I, some construction going on around here. So oh, <laughs> talking about being in the clouds in the dirt. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, and uh, so... Um, have you so I'm gonna have to ask this, which is like, have you ever kind of syndicated a projects or bring other people's money into the projects? Um, and then how do you kind of treat these transactions differently than your your own portfolio, like uh, stuff that you yeah. own? So, well, uh, I've worked with a lot of syndicators. I've obviously uh, advised a lot of syndications. Right. So uh, that's one of the services I've offered in the past, where syndicators would come in, see me, kind of act as like a kind of like a, a chief investment officer on demand. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and in my own deals, I haven't syndicated my own deals. I've brought on joint venture partners or a couple, you know, silent partners here and there. Right. Yeah. So for, for me, I treat them all the same. Like it's, I think that whether you're buying your own deals or you're joint venturing or you're syndicating, I, I treat it with a very high level of humility and respect. And I treat it so that a lot of energy is put into making sure it's well-structured. Now, if you're syndicating or you have joint venture partners, the difference is Mm communication-wise. Communication-wise and risk management, where I think if you're using other people's money, 
your risk management has to be even higher because losing your money is one thing, losing other people's money is an even bigger thing. Right. And I think if you own your own properties, that's one thing. But if you have partners with you or investors, that level of communication has got to be so much higher and you have to over deliver. So I think that's, that's really where the differences are, you right. know, in those types of investments. Yeah, that's well said. Um, and in terms of structure, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, you're kind of the master of um, structuring the deal. Um, can you give us like maybe a couple examples where you see a value? Because nowadays, people always say, oh, the price is too high. Should yeah. you, you know, even people start two years ago, three years ago. I know it's a very- 10 price years ago, people would say the price, right? is, too the, the price is too high. <laughs> Should they wait? Right. So um, how, how do you think about this? And can you give us like a one or two examples how different structure uh, makes the deal kind of worth doing? Well, I, think, I think waiting is not investing, essentially. So people who talk about waiting and, you know, they're waiting it on the sidelines. Essentially, what they're saying is they're not investors. Right. Right. An investor is someone who's investing and who's invested. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a very important nuance to to to, to underline. So. Uh, um, so that's one thing. It's it's kind of like Bitcoin. Like I'll I'll take Bitcoin, okay? Which is kind of a weird kind of parallel to make, but you know, I've bought Bitcoin at essentially every single price because I'm a Bitcoin investor, right? Um, some people call that dollar cost averaging, but I've bought Bitcoin at every price point. Now, same thing for multifamily real estate. Like if you've purchased multifamily over the last 10 years, you've essentially dollar average costed it, right? So um, but the important thing is to invest because if you're not investing, what are you doing? Your money's sitting on the sidelines. Right. Ray Dalio has said it numerous times. Cash is trash. Inflation right. destroys cash. Right. right. So, and, and multifamily is an inflation hedge. So you should be investing. Now, the problem that you pointed out is price. People don't understand the difference between price and value. Mm -hmm. Price is not value. Price is not always indicative of value. And like I, a lot of investment, a lot of real estate investors always use the kind of Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, you know, value investing theory of buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. But that's misunderstood 99% of the times, right? Yeah. Buying low, selling high doesn't mean that uh, you can't purchase an apartment building at a high price because price is not value price sometimes demonstrates value but not always especially if you're doing value add stuff and opportunistic stuff you know i purchased i'll give you an example i purchased a uh, uh, a warehouse on a piece of land recently last year actually mm -hmm. i purchased that for two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. no one wanted to buy that it was on the market for quite a while and the seller was willing, willing to finance the, the, the $225,000. So essentially, it's a no money deal, right? Yeah. No money down deal. Now, if you look at that deal as is, it was way too expensive. It was probably $100,000 too expensive. I purchased it, put no money down. I then put about $60,000 down to tear it down. And then it cost me maybe another, uh, you know, another $15,000 in holding costs and, and, and architects and whatnot. And, and I went to this city and uh, I essentially got accepted a, a 60 unit. Uh, uh, so I, I got the city to approve plans for me to build seven, six unit apartment buildings on the piece of land. So 42 units, mm -hmm. 42 units 
the land essentially is now worth about $1.2 million. Wow. So it cost me $300,000, 225 plus $60,000 teardown, plus $15,000 in soft costs, which was about $100,000 worth more than, priced more at what it was worth at that time. Mm-hmm. But because of the intrinsic value of the land that no one else saw, but that I saw, mm-hmm. I essentially, you know, purchased that land for $100,000 too much versus what it was worth. Right. Its true value was way higher than that. Right. I essentially made a million dollars, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I made $900,000. So yeah. you have to understand that value and price are two different things. And I think way too many people are getting caught up in price, mm-hmm. thinking that price is value. Right. And then so so in the market that's kind of saturated, let's just say someone's doing multifamily investing. Yeah. Yeah. Um and um and then some what are some values would you say maybe some undercover value? Because we all know like adding washer and dryers, adding like it, just the standard stuff. Yeah. Nowadays it's like how can people rubs and stuff like that? Like yeah. everyone's done the rubs thing and yeah, washer dryer, internet, uh, TV, stuff like that. I'm obviously much more of a heavy, heavy value add and opportunistic guy. So personally, so what I'd like to do is number one, I always look at an apartment building and say, can I add more units into it? Uh, number one, number two, can I add a story on top? Like, can I add a floor? Mm-hmm. Number two, number three, can I raise the property up and, and put maybe units in the, in the basement? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Or like a half kind of basement thing. Uh, and number four, is this piece of land, like is the property on this piece of land optimal for it? Like um, I'm, I'm purchasing an eight unit apartment building right now and I'm paying way too much for it. Like ridiculous amount. Right. But I know that the land is already zoned for a 28 unit apartment on it. So I'm just going to knock down the eight unit and then build 28 units. So if you take the price I'm paying for it and divide it by 28 units, I'm really not paying a lot of money for that piece of land, but I'm looking at it as a land deal and not as as a multifamily, you know, used apartment deal. Right. Right, right. So that's changing the way you look at deals. And that's where I teach real estate and real estate, uh, financial engineering. That's one of the big parts of it is understanding how to create kind of new products and derivative products and, you know, playing with capital stacks, playing with zoning laws, playing with all those types of, kind of things that allow you to create value. Right, right. And then, Purchase at a price that is below intrinsic value. Right. Not necessarily right. below actual value, but below intrinsic value. Very right. different things. Right, right. Because because the market is so competitive right now. Um, yeah, for sure. You have to you have to change the glasses that you're looking at. You can't yeah. look at the market with the same eyes that everyone else is looking at it. Yeah. And then, so let's kind of talk about the market a little bit more. Uh, where are you investing? People always asking these questions, like, which is like, hey, like, where do you invest? You know, the most generic question I love is, where should I invest in which market? Right. So, like, do you have kind of like an answer to that? Like, we'll have it. Um, uh, it might be all these knocking construction on your side. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, cool. All right. So, um, Nikolai, tell us a little bit about the markets. What do you yeah. think about the markets and your theory about the markets right, right. where you should be investing? Because that's always usually our investors' favorite questions. So I think I think you have to keep in mind that multifamily real estate is very hyper-local. So there, there, there are no bad and good markets. 
uh, you can be in a bad market, but still make good investments, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do I like Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas and Tampa Bay, Florida more than I like Cleveland, Ohio and, and Kansas City and Indianapolis? Yeah, of course I do. But does that mean I wouldn't invest in, in Kansas City or, Cle or Cleveland or Baltimore? No, it doesn't. It, it just means that overall the macro of those markets, I prefer their demographics. So, yeah, I mean, definitely I, I look at demographics and uh, economics uh, before I enter a market. Uh, I like to see a market with good population growth or projected population growth with, uh, you know, uh, jobs being created, salaries are growing. Uh, that's all stuff I like to see. Houses are increasing in prices because if they are, that means, you know, more people with good salaries are actually going to be renting, which is good for, you know, increasing rents. So that's all stuff I like to look at. I like to look also like what type of economy is there. So, you know, I prefer markets with, you know, may maybe uh, economies that are not just too uh, focused on just one industry that have, you know, many industries. Yeah. Um, so, so that's definitely a way of looking at it. I myself personally, uh, because I live in near Montreal, I'm looking at like Canadian markets uh, mm -hmm. right now. I've invested very heavily in a market called Sherbrooke, which mm -hmm. is a secondary city. It's about an hour south of Montreal. There are two universities and two colleges in the city. Um, so I've invested, I've, I've purchased 35, I think, yeah, pretty, probably pretty close to 35 properties in the last 15 months in that market. And I'm applying a mo monopoly effect. So I've purchased essentially like 30 properties in like a, a, a two mile radius in like the, the downtown core of that city that was a very bad area, but I've bought so many properties and I'm renovating all of them. So yeah. I'm forcing myself, I'm, I'm the one forcing the appreciation of the market. Right. Monopoly effect. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very rare thing to do. I was able to do it, thankfully, because I have access to capital and I've had access to a lot of deals. Um, for the U.S., uh, I'll, I'm, I'll probably be entering, uh, you know, uh, markets. Uh, I'm looking at Georgia and Florida a lot and the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. uh, just just you know essentially for for uh, geographic reasons because I, I split time between montreal and miami yeah uh, but you know other than that i don't i think you know people need to not get so knocked up in in, in markets every market has good deals every mm -hmm. market there are good places to invest mm -hmm. um, but yeah that's that's kind of the way that i that i think about it I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Cool. So we're going to wrap up our interviews over here because there's so much we learned over here in terms of financings and there's a gazillion million different ways to do it. Tell us a little bit about your school, MREX. Yeah. Like what do you what do you teach over there? And then what what is kind of like the, the program works? Um, and then can people actually join it? Absolutely. And actually <laughs> before that, I, I'm just thinking about the last question you asked me and I, for, I forgot something. The one thing I would suggest is fall in love with the markets that you invest in. Like that's the biggest piece of knowledge I can give someone. And that's like worth more than any course or certification or mentorship that you can go through is the market you decide to invest in or the area that you decide to invest in, in a market, invest in understanding that market. So like where I've invested, I walk the streets all the time. I eat in all the restaurants. I go and shop in all the places around where I'm investing. And I get a feel for it. And I, I end up falling in love with where I'm investing and I, I, I get invested into it. So I think that's a very important thing. So, so that's kind of the end of that. 
As for the Emrex College, uh, uh, we've uh, we, we I founded it five years ago in Canada, in Montreal. We've had thousands of multifamily investors and commercial investors come through our our school. Um, what we do differently is that we we're not a competitor to say the different coaching and mentorship programs that exist. Like you know, in the U.S., there's obviously Jake and Gino and Rod Khalif, Brad Sumrock. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of them out there, and they're all. I think very, very good. And I think it's important to get mentored and, and to get coaching. What we do is we kind of, we're more of the, uh, we bring you all the theoretical and, and tools and knowledge so that you can even get more out of your coaching. So if you're getting coached by, by one of these schools or programs or people, right. you should probably be studying with us as well, because we're going to give you even more knowledge to better apply the coaching that you're getting. And the coaching that you're getting is going to help you apply what we're teaching you. So we're much more kind of like, a, a, you can see us as like a university, yeah. but accessible to every single real estate investor. So even if you don't have a university degree already, or even if you don't want to go to university, you can come to us and you can learn with us through on-demand courses, through live courses. And no matter what your background is, whether you're a carpenter, whether you haven't, whether you don't even have your, your grade 12 education, that's fine. You'll be able to come and study with us at the MX College, learn the basics of finance and economics for real estate investing, and, and maybe even eventually learn real estate financial engineering, underwriting, modeling, how to read markets, and how to do all this stuff to help you become a better real estate investor, a real estate syndicator, or even an asset manager or a property manager. Yeah, makes sense. And then uh, having your coach intend to then kind of work on the specialized items. Over. Right, exactly. Um, and Nikolai, um, I know you have three cute little kid, uh, kids. Yeah. Fourth and, one, the fourth one on the way. Fourth one on the way. Um, so what are you doing right now to kind of make sure that they inherit your entrepreneur spirits um, and learning the financial literacy? Well, I'm not actually trying to have them inherit my entrepreneurial spirit because I think that like, I think there's way too much made right now. Of everyone should be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think if you want to be a W2 employee, go for it and do it and do it really well. And I think, you know, cause if no one's a W2 employee, there won't be any entrepreneurs cause no one will want to work for any of the businesses. Right. Yeah. So I think, do you like, if, if you want to be an entrepreneur, do you, it's not an easy road. It's right. not always a fun road. Just as if you want to be an employee, do you and be a great employee. So with my children, that's kind of what I'm teaching them is like, you know, not one is not better than the other. You don't have to do one or the other. Do you and make sure that you're happy with your, what you're doing and that you're invested entirely in what you're doing, be it as an entrepreneur or as an employee. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, essentially show them. Now I take them with me, you know, to my properties and to my businesses and meet my employees and meet our clients. And so they can kind of see that. And then, you know what, they'll, they'll decide when, once they're adults, what they want to do. And I think that's the biggest gift we can give our children is just that one is not better than the other. We don't want to fall into that trap. And the important thing is that they're happy and that they are invested because I don't think you can be happy if you're not fully vested into what you're doing. Yeah. Whether as an employee or as an entrepreneur. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nicola. And how Appreciate do people it. find you in terms of um, MREX and yeah. then new products, the beta pro products that we've been kind of talking about? Absolutely. Well, I, personally, you can connect with me on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm quite, I'm quite, uh, 
quite active there. You can connect with the MREX College, MREX, so M-R-E-X College uh, on yeah. Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Uh, we're going to be putting out more and more content in English. So I know we just started our YouTube channel, so definitely go there. And yeah, that's the best way to connect with us. We're all very down-to-earth people, very passionate about real estate investing and education. And I think if you're a real estate investor, especially in the multifamily space, you don't want to miss the, the, the you, you, you don't want to not follow us because we share just so much and we, we love what we do. So Right. And I do. So <laughs> that's all good. Um, awesome. So we'll put, put that in the show notes down here as well. Um, so you don't have to actually remember what it is uh, as always. And thank you so much for your time, Nikolai, today. And uh, looking forward to always chat with you. Again. Thanks, Eliza. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to 10,000 Roads to Financial Independence. This can be you. What if today was the day you started the countdown clock to your financial independence? Join many others like you at www.easyfiuniversity.com to get started.